Our gospel lesson this morning is found in Luke chapter 1. We are reading verses 39 through 56. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we gather around your word this morning, we ask that the same spirit that inspired Elizabeth with joy and rejoicing would live in us to lead and guide us into all truth. And so we ask that you would speak, for your servants are here to listen. In Christ's name, amen. We will be a bit briefer than normal today because we have taken some time to walk you through our new website, and we believe that that's important. And we also are going to do this thing called ordination and installation of our new deacons today. So not to have you here until 1.30, because I know that Presbyterians like to do things orderly and in good time and beat the Baptist to the buffet line or whatever it is that you do. But... Uh, We're going to work through this next passage in Luke, uh, in verses 39 through 56. As a college freshman, I was attempting to understand what uh, God wanted me to do with my faith. I had grown up in the church, had professed faith in Jesus, and had a true and lively relationship with Him. I had been told since I was 12 years old that I was going to be a preacher, and I resented it. I didn't know why everybody had this target on me. And I had this other double whammy curse, and it was my name, Chuck Colson. And because some of you are new, I'm going to go ahead and clarify this so we don't have to go through the normal round of jokes. Don't feel insecure if you've ever done that with me. It's okay. But in 1975, when I was born, there was a man named Chuck Colson who was going to prison for his role in Watergate. And uh, Chuck Colson, at that point, was really on the low ebb of his career. He was disgraced and going away. And so my parents, when it came to naming me, they asked, well, if we name him Charles Colson, will anyone think anything? And they said, no, nobody will ever think another thing out of it. Well, what happened was God converted him and messed up my life forever. <laughs> you know, where I'm asked, are you his son? Are you related to him? And it's no to all of that, okay? Okay. Um, 
And, uh, but Chuck Colson's obviously, he died several years ago, and that has been a great relief. I used to receive phone calls regularly uh, with ministry ideas and uh, how I could improve the prison situation and all such things, and that has pretty much died off. Sometimes I have to announce to people that he is now with Jesus and uh, gone, and, uh, and that one day, the next time we meet, it'll, it will be in new bodies. So, Chuck Colson's legacy, though, and the things that he offers are, um, are tremendous. And during my freshman year of college, as I was kind of wondering about my faith and what I was going to do, uh, my first semester, I was trying to rebel. Um, I figured out that I couldn't even do that well. Uh, God was convicting me as I tried to turn away from him and uh, began to draw me back um, to the foundations of my faith. One of the books that I turned and looked at my bookshelf that had been given me was this book by Chuck Colson called Loving God. And so I picked that up and I began to read. And the book is about what does it mean to authentically respond to the grace of God. It's a very simple, clear book about once once you have an encounter with Jesus, what is supposed to happen. And Luke, when he writes his nativity story is very conscious of that same dynamic. When we encounter Jesus, when we meet the grace of God, everything that's revealed in this story, what is to be our response? Two pieces to that response. The first is this. There is to be joy that leads to rejoicing. This is what an authentic encounter with Jesus does to us. It creates joy that leads to rejoicing. When you read Luke's Gospel, you're going to begin to notice that there's a repetition of certain words, and it's very intentional. And in the first two chapters, you find it repeatedly. Joy and rejoicing. There's a couple of words that Luke uses, but it's all to, in order to impress on us that this is what the coming of Jesus into the world does. It begins with the announcement of the birth of John in chapter 1 and verse 14, but there was to be rejoicing, that that was what was going to happen because John was kicking everything off. And then you find it in our own passage where Elizabeth, full of the Holy Spirit, is rejoicing. She's filled with joy. Mary then responds praising. The shepherds are going to rejoice. Everybody is rejoicing, and this is programmatic by Luke. He is teaching us what it means to respond to God. It's important for us to look specifically at Mary. Sometimes Mary's role in the church has been overblown. My general theology of Mary is don't talk bad about Jesus' mama. You don't talk bad about anybody's mom. Okay? But Mary is given to us specifically as an example. An example of obedience and submission to God And how she responds specifically here is with rejoicing. Look in verse 46 and 47. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. This is once again that programmatic element to Luke where he is saying this is what it looks like to respond when God intervenes in our world, in our lives, is that we rejoice and we respond uh, with that joy. The main question for us is why? Why does God's intervention in our lives lead to this peculiar expression? Why does it lead to joy and rejoicing? Mary helps us. And where she specifically helps us is in verse 48. She says, For he has looked on the humble estate 
of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And do you hear what Mary says? Why the grace of God leads us to rejoice? She understands her humble estate. She understands who she is. She has a proper self-awareness and self-understanding in front of God. She actually knows that God owes her nothing. That she owes everything to God. And that she doesn't carry the Son of God because of any merit or any value in and of herself. If you remember back to last week when the angel originally announces to Mary in chapter 1, verse 28, says, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. There's lots of ways that O favored one could be translated, but it specifically means this, blessed one, one who's been singled out in grace. Okay? It's about God's initiation. It's not about anything Mary has done. It's not about her being righteous and pious. It's not about her being a virgin even per se, even though she was. But it is about God simply in His choice singling out Mary for His purposes. And so it's purely of Him. It's His prerogative to do that. And Mary has no entitlement. But she hears the Word of God's grace interrupting her life and her world. And remember, this was extraordinarily inconvenient. And she knows that she's been favored by God. And friends, it's when we experience the grace of God in that way and we see the humility of our own situation, that we know our sins and we know what grace has redeemed and saved us from, that that is the only type of situation where joy emerges. From time to time, people will ask, Chuck, why do we do a confession of sin each week? And then why in the daily prayer devotional do you encourage a confession of sin every day? Isn't that a little formal and overwrought? No. The point is, is that our rejoicing is directly tied to the, our, the reality of our situation and our understanding of it. And so to have our sinfulness and our brokenness in front of us all the time is extraordinarily important because you're rejoicing, your joy in life is directly tied to your experience of grace. And that experience of grace is tied to your understanding of your sinfulness. Mary understood the humility of her condition. She understood her fragileness. She understood the brokenness of her world. And that joy that then comes because she understands who's coming through her leads to rejoicing. It's critical for us. Now, there's one mistake that we are prone to make, though, and that we make often, and that is that we tend to put our joy in other things in the Christian life than on the basic foundational thing that God establishes, that He has blessed us and called us His own. So we tend to put our joy in our role that God gives us, or we put our joy in the success that we experience inside of that role. As a young uh, young college freshman that same year that I was discussing earlier, I went on what was called a summer beach project where I was working a very menial job working at a Burger King in Daytona Beach and was learning how to do evangelism. And uh, it was after our first week, full week on the beach project, and we had a, um, a night where we were breaking into small prayer groups. And uh, there was an older pastor who was present that night who came from First Pres Augusta to be with us. 
and he was in my prayer group. So we began sharing. Some people had great encouraging stories, and then people like me had very devastating stories. It had been a hard week. And so we were all looking at one another. Some were proud and some were depressed. Some were excited and some were just flat discouraged. How were we supposed to hold all that together? It's a man named Russell Murray, and I still remember his words. He pointed us to Luke chapter 10, which is tied to our passage even today. You can turn there. In Luke 10, Jesus sends out the 72 on mission to do his work. They returned to him, and they had been incredibly successful. And in verse 17, it says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are are written in heaven. This is that same repetition of those words used in Luke 1 for joy and rejoice. And do you see that this is the foundation of true rejoicing, of real sustainable joy? That it's not rejoicing in the role that God perhaps gives you. It's not rejoicing in success or failure, But the foundational joy that we can have as Christians is in this initial blessing by God that our names are written in the book of life, that we've been favored, that God has set us apart, that He has singled us out, that He has made us His own. What this did for Mary is it set her free from herself. And now she was free for God. She was free to be His servant. She was free from all the misconceptions about her pregnancy. Can you imagine the rumors? She didn't get a pass on that. And now free from all of that stuff, free by the grace of God, she was free to serve Him. And friends, that's what God holds out for us as well. That's what He has for us. That He would give us a joy in that foundational statement that we are His, that we belong to Him through Jesus Christ, sins forgiven, removed, destroyed, and now put in right relationship with Him. And then we can serve Him without entitlement, without care, without bitterness, in complete and absolute freedom. Second piece about what it means to authentically respond to God is that there is also a trust that leads to obedience. This is what we find in Mary's life. We're told that she's blessed. Elizabeth announces it. She exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And so Mary, as the bearer of the Godchild, the one who is bringing Jesus into the world in a miraculous way, she was blessed among women, and blessed is the child who was coming. And oftentimes we miss the point, though, that Mary was blessed. She was singled out by God, but then she also responded to God in faith and obedience. Look in verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And so Mary experienced the benefit, though, because she submitted herself to God. 
And remember also that the angel said, I want you to go to your cousin Elizabeth. And where does Mary go in verse 39? To her cousin Elizabeth. She obediently submits herself to God's instructions. And so she goes and she follows. And so Mary was submitting herself to God. And this is instructive for us, that this is the path that God leads us in, that we're to trust Him, and that trust leads us in obedience to Him. Luke builds on this theme in a very provocative way. If you'll turn to chapter 11. Later on in the story, when Jesus is in His adult years and ministering, He encounters a woman. It's in Luke 11, verse 27 and 28. A woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you were nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And so, yes, we can respect Mary, but we can also miss the point of Mary. That Mary is an example of trusting and faithful obedience to God, believing what God says, and then following Him. And so Jesus commends to us not the womb that bore Him, but rather those who hear the Word and keep it. Those who receive God's promises and believe that they're true and they're good. That they're trustworthy. Who receive God's commands not with cynicism and suspicion, but that His commands lead to freedom. This is the example that Mary sets out for us through her own circumstances and situations. In Loving God, I went back through this week remembering reading that book a long time ago now and found some things that I had underlined, and this was one of the lines that stuck out to me. Chuck Colson wrote this, For maturing faith, faith which deepens and grows as we live out our Christian life, is not just knowledge, but knowledge acted upon. It is not just belief, but belief lived out, practiced. And that's what Mary teaches us. She lives out and practices her trip to Elizabeth, her submission to the angel. This is what faith looks like in action, holding, claiming God's promises and then putting them into effect. This is where she takes us. But what holds this together? A life of joy leading to rejoicing? A life of trust that leads to obedience? What holds it all together? I believe we find this in Mary's song. This is often known as the Magnificat. She announces her humble estate in front of God. And then in verse 50 through 55, she hits a new gear. She begins to sing something new. And what she announces is she announces the great reversal of history, that God was going to throw down the mighty and exalt those who were lowly, that the first would be last and the last would be first, as Jesus would say, that God was going to take those who were satisfied and that they would be unsatisfied and that the hungry would have a full belly. And Mary is drawing on Old Testament text here, pointing us to the great fulfillment of the day that had been promised. She wraps it up in verse 55. She says, As He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. 
And in this little tagline, this is not just a cross-reference in your Bible. It's a cross-reference to the entire story of the Scriptures. That what Mary is cross-referencing is God's purposes in the world and what God is uniquely doing through the people of Israel, through Jesus Christ, to renew and make clean His world. This is what holds it all together. This is what holds joy and obedience together for us. Is the much larger picture and panorama of God's purposes. Because what was clear here in Luke 1 is that God was now speaking and acting to recover His plan to renew the world. You see, the world was a good place, made by God. It was to be a pleasurable and enjoyable place in the Garden of Eden. Then it was polluted by sin. And it was broken and turned upside down and things don't work like they're supposed to. We're not in right relationship with God. We're not in right relationship with one another. We're not in right relationship with the creation itself. That our world is broken and tired and busted and upside down and it's not the way it's supposed to be. But then God began to do something. And in Genesis 12, we find that He singles out a man named Abraham. He was Abram at that time. And says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make your descendants as many as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you blessing. I'm going to give you inheritance. And then he says that your descendants are going to be a blessing to the nations of the earth. All the nations of the earth will be blessed in you. That was God's plan to save the world. It was through Abraham's family. When Mary sings her song, she's rejoicing because she sees that the fulfillment of that promise has arrived. That here now we have a Jewish king who's going to take his throne and he's going to lead blessing. He's going to bring blessing through Abraham to the nations of the earth. And she recognizes that this is going to be the one who brings all things, uh, makes all things right and can bring new heavens and new earth who can heal broken and tired bodies, who can fix all that's broken with creation. And when Mary sings this song, that is everything that she is invoking. All of that imagery that she pulls on, that great reversal of things, is the fixing and making right of creation. I was speaking with one of my mentors recently, he was telling me about a conversation that he had with a fellow pastor. It was a good friend. They had known each other for many years, but hadn't seen each other. They sat down over breakfast, and the pastor confided in my friend. He said, you know, I'm, I'm terribly discouraged. Church is not going well. People's hearts are hard. They don't seem to care about my preaching. The culture is all upside down. And so he then went on for about five minutes about what needed to happen in the next election cycle. And he talked about how the church was losing ground and everything was torn up, messed up. Mentor took a swig of coffee and then he looked at him and said, snap out of it. <laughs> and so I asked him, I said, well, how do you respond to that? <laughs> He said, well, I went on to preach everything that he already knows is true. He said, what I went on to tell him to remember 
that Jesus has died and been raised, and that all the world's evil was concentrated on Him at the cross, and He destroyed it when He came out the other side of death, that the Savior of the world has been born and has come into the world and redeemed it, and we're waiting for Him to return. And yes, things are broken and tired right now, and everything doesn't work, but we live in the joyful expectation because of what He's done, everything that will be. And his friend responded, I know, I know you're right. And friends, this is what happens to us, is we can become very short-sighted. We can focus on the things right in front of us, and we cannot tie all of this together in the much grander, larger story of what God is doing in His world to make things right. Mary got that. Remember, it looked like she was illegitimately pregnant, probably at about 12 years old. But she could tie together joy. She could tie together obedience and trust because she believed that this great purpose of God to renew everything, that promise made to Abraham to lead the nations into right relationship with God was now being unfolded. And friends, we have to keep that always in front of us. That this is the major drama of history. It's not the little micro-dramas that go on in our lives. The big story is right here. This is what is important. And this is what will lead us in successful response to God, is keeping this in front of us always. And it is also the only thing that will save you during the Advent season from being consumed by everything else. Keep this central. Keep this in front of you. It will drive your discipleship. It will orient your life. It gives you an anchor for your soul.